pediatric speech language pathologist and welcome to Teach Me to Talk the podcast. Today we're continuing our autism podcast series and we're going to be talking about again one of my very favorite things. I think I say that every show but it's receptive language. But let's just dive right in and get started. For those of you who are not speech language pathologists let's begin with a definition of receptive language. So what is receptive language? Receptive language is the information or what a child receives from you. So if you can think about receptive and receiving or his language comprehension or basically what he understands, uh, the language he understands other people say. Expressive language is just that. What can he express? And usually we talk about that with what he can say or the number of words he knows. And so today we're talking about the other piece, the piece that comes first with receptive language. Now, many times parents are very aware that their children are not talking, but then you ask them something about receptive language, like how well does your child understand language? And what do they say? They give you an answer like something like, everybody say it with me. How well does your child understand language? And they say what? He understands everything. And a lot of times that it's just simply not true. But parents haven't really understood the importance of receptive language. Um, and so they don't prioritize it like they do what, uh, with the number of words that a child can use. And so when we kind of switch that around a little bit, and instead of saying, how much does your child understand, when we ask really specific questions like, how well does your child follow commands? And you can ask a mom those same two questions, how well does your child understand language? And she says everything, and then you'll say, okay, great. Well, how does he follow commands? And she'll say, well, he hardly ever does anything I ask him to do. And they don't get that disconnect. They they blame that uh, non-compliance, if you want to think about it in that way, or not doing what their uh, verbal request, what a verbal request has been asked of them. They blame that on uh, a child being stubborn or a child being lazy or any other number of personality factors or uh, uh, things uh, that have to do more with the child's temperament rather than looking at what is probably really going on. At least a, a component of that is nearly always a receptive language problem. So we have to be really, really careful when we're talking with parents about that so that we make sure that we know where they are with what they're thinking about their child's communication skills and then sharing with them what we know to be the problem just as professionals. Now let me say, I just said something that might make some of you raise an eyebrow. A parent is always going to know their child better than we do as a professional, right? <laughs> That's just the, <laughs> the baseline. They are always going to know those kinds of uh, just the ins and outs of a child with living with a child 24-7 and loving their own child like they do that we'll never do as a child's therapist or teacher or whatever you happen to be. However, as a professional, sometimes we, we can see things that parents don't see because our training is different. And it's the same thing with other professionals. You may be frustrated as an SLP on a team with other people who don't prioritize receptive language like you do. 
OTs, PTs, a developmental interventionist, and even our colleagues in ABA, even though they are fantastic and recommended for children with autism, they still don't get the receptive language piece and, and again, understand the importance and prioritize it like we as SLPs do. So that's our job is to really educate not only parents, but other professionals who are in our field. So Again, we have to help everybody who's working with a child understand that it's not just about talking. The language comprehension piece actually has to come first. And sometimes kids with autism will have to say a word before they can seem to understand a word, and I get that. But our focus here is on what we are doing. What are we doing? Are we trying to sit and really elicit a child's uh, and facilitate a child's words rather than making sure that he understands the words first before he can actually say those little words? All right, so let's talk about the specific differences we see in children with autism uh, with their receptive language skills. And if you haven't thought about this as an SLP, I would really, really challenge you to think about how autism affects the whole child. And certainly he's going to learn language differently. So we can't really take our same kind of philosophical approach that we that we take with everybody we have to really look at these nuances that we see with children with receptive language issues who also have red flags for autism or who have been diagnosed with autism and really kind of tease out these differences so that we understand from the beginning we're going to have to tweak some of the things that we can do to more effectively help a child with autism learn how to understand language so the first difference that we want to talk about with receptive language in children with autism is that a really, really common but very atypical pattern when we compare the language development of a kid with autism versus a kid who's typically developing, and that's that their expressive language, now pop test, what's that mean? <laughs> expressive language, what a child can say, that developmental language equivalency is actually higher than what a child understands. So, and when we're in a testing situation, let's just kind of put it that way. So or even in everyday life, you know, following simple commands. So let's kind of look at that. Let's, let's kind of say, how can that be? And why is that a problem? When we think about typically developing children, and actually even most kids with other language delays, especially those kids that are just late talkers with an expressive delay, when we think about them and what they can say versus what they understand, which one is more? Typically developing children usually what? Uh, and in the toddler preschool phase, they understand more than they can say. And remember what we just said with kids, some kids with autism, it's reversed. They say more than they really can demonstrate that they understand. And so anytime you are testing a child as a professional and particularly as a speech language pathologist, when you see that pattern reversed with what we typically expect to see, that's one of the red flags for autism. And you should really, really think about that and again that's what makes autism a disorder a language disorder versus a language delay a delay just means there's a problem with timing everything's coming in as expected but it's just slower than we, the the pattern is the same there's not any very many quirks or very many differences that we can point out it's just a slower progression when a child has a language disorder, there are atypical things, which mean that we may not see things that we expect to see or that we may see things that we don't expect to see. And so again, that's what makes it atypical. So we really, really need to keep that in mind when we're, seeing, when we're uh, thinking about children with autism is just how big of a gap that receptive language um, 
in, in that realm of receptive language, it may be an even bigger gap than you realize, especially if that child is already talking. And so, and already, uh, if we see echolalia, which again, that means for those of you who aren't SLPs or um, uh, other developmental professionals, echolalia means that a child quotes uh, verbatim, sometimes even with the same intonation or prosody, something that he's heard somewhere else. Usually it's with the movie, so that's why some professionals call it movie talk instead of echolalia. They, they quote, long, sometimes long even paragraphs. It might be a book or a song, but again, they're not really directing that toward anyone else. They're just echoing. It's not, it doesn't really have a lot of purpose or intentionality. Now, some kids with autism do, when they have a lot of little echolalic phrases, do begin to use those more communicatively, but we're doing the heavy lifting with that. We're, uh, the adult who's listening to them is the one who's really trying to assign meaning to that in the earliest stages of echolalia, which we're going to talk about in depth in several more shows uh, in this series. We'll review, you know, all those different steps. But again, the pa- the the thing that I want to leave you here with this show, and, and when we're talking about receptive languages, we can't always think that those uh, words, phrases, even sentences, paragraphs that a child is using are intentional. So we can't give a child really quote unquote credit for using those language forms unless it's really communicative, so purposefully directed to somebody else. So. Um, <clears throat> Uh, sometimes too, we uh, again. I want to be sure to uh, say this one more time. When kids have those large expressive language uh, vocabularies, we've got to step back and take a look and uh, make sure that we're focusing on their receptive language. All right. So let's look at the the next difference we see in the receptive language of children with autism. Young children with autism may have language processing issues. So a child with autism may seem to understand. And again, for some of our verbal kids with autism, they be, may even be saying the individual keywords in a direction like um, go get your shoes they're by the door and so even though the child may label shoes or door when you put those commands together in that 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 very uh, as a speech language pathologist you know, we're looking at those a two-step command but really there are four pieces of information there get shoes you know over by the door you know we've got those two uh, Four big pieces of information there. Again, a child might understand those those distinct pieces of that, but not really get uh, processing that you want him to go get his shoes and they're over by the door. And so they just can't put language together. And so that's a big difference sometimes with children with autism. Some children with autism also are just stalled learners. That means that they learn in chunks versus individual words. And so this is a kid that looks at the whole versus the part. So when we as SLPs get so focused on those keywords, as we should be, and like we just talked about in the previous example, some of our little guys learn the entire phrase as one word. So something like, I got it, I did it, where'd it go, give me that. And we may, again, we're sort of talking about expressive language here, we may give a child credit for saying all of those things. We might give them credit for understanding and using those pronouns like I and me in those phrases, or even when, when a child's saying, where'd it go, where'd it go, where'd it go, we might even give him credit for asking a lot of WH questions when that's really the only example of a WH question that we have. And we know that children need to have more examples and it's not just kind of a one-shot thing. And so we have to look at that. And again, I I started sort of drifting toward expressive language with this, but uh, we can't give a kid 
credit for those things when we're not seeing that he's really, really understanding uh, those differences, especially when we're looking at higher level uh, language development like pronouns. And so we have to really look and think about from a receptive language perspective, our little kids with autism do learn things in chunks. And so we as the adult can't tease that out into individual parts until we know that a child is there. All right, the fourth um, issue that we can see with receptive language in children with autism is that they may have an affinity for a certain topic, like they may love uh, dinosaurs or they may love trains. Or let's, let's bring it back to something that's a little more, say, academic, like they may like shapes or colors or letters or numbers. And because they recognize numbers, and even if they're not talking very much, but if they see the number seven, or and, and every time they see it, they say it, and they look for that little number seven as they're flipping through books, or, or something that just, you know, that makes a parent or a grandparent say, aha, oh my goodness, he's so smart, and, and that, that is smart, and that is fantastic, that is a cognitive strength, but then a grandparent or a parent thinks that the child understands everything because they're putting all of his language skills up on par with that little splinter skill that we uh, are noticing and uh, loving and, and celebrating. And again, we should be, but we can't really assume that a child understands everything, especially when he has a particular uh, fixation almost on a certain little topic. And so again, we have to be really super leery of that and I've worked with so many families where this has happened and a parent will say something like you know I don't understand how he can count to a hundred but not not listen when I'm talking to him or not like go get something simple like you know I know you want to read your book go get me your book and, and, and we'll read it together and they just don't understand how a kid can't do that and so they again mislabel a child's efforts there is that he's being disobedient he doesn't listen he's so stubborn that kind of thing when really there is a receptive language gap and i think i said i was going to share four differences that we often see in receptive language of children with autism but really there are five <laughs> so here a toddler let's talk about the fifth one when a toddler or a preschooler is having difficulty with that social piece of language development we can expect receptive language difficulties too. Why is that? Because when a kid struggles to connect with people, when he doesn't um, in, seem to enjoy, when he, when he avoids or when he runs away or when he is so self-isolating because he's really paying attention to and directing 100% of his whole little system to focus on what he wants to listen to and he seems to kind of tune out or what he wants to pay attention to and he seems to kind of tune out other people again because he's had these social issues that really leads to a receptive language problem because he hasn't focused on what somebody else is saying to him long enough or um he, he just hasn't done it, and so the receptive language piece is missing because we know that that social connection comes first. He wants to be with other people. He would rather, uh, instead of being off in his room by himself, kind of doing his own thing, wandering around the house, kind of doing his own thing, he's with mom and dad. He's listening to mom and dad, and over time, what happens with babies, they start to link meaning with words, and that's what's not happening when a kid has a significant social issue. He hasn't, he hasn't gotten that first little piece with, oh, I, I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to listen to everything you say, and my little brain's going to organize this, and I'm going to end up understanding what those words mean. When the social piece isn't there, there's a disconnect as well. All right, so how do we help parents and other professionals understand why we're working on receptive language and prioritize it like we do expressive language? Well, we have to make it more important to them. We have to say things, we have to tie in what we're working on with a parent or even another professional's ultimate goal, which is nearly always what? talking. And so when we say to a parent, he he can't really use words until he what? understands words. And so we kind of get at that piece right at the beginning and make that the heart of our treatment with. It's not that he's not just talking. Language to him overall is complicated. This this is complex for him. We've got to break this down and help help figure out better ways to teach him how to learn what words mean so that he can begin to use those words to communicate and use those words to talk to you. Another really practical way to get a parent to understand and want to prioritize receptive language is just to simply say, how well does your child follow commands? How is he, how is he, uh, following your request. And so you ask them those kinds of things and you share with them that by 18 months, children with typically developing language are following simple commands related to their verbal routines and everyday activities all day long. And so you want to talk to a parent about that. And usually that gets a lot of buy-in too, because you say when he understands language more, he's going to be more cooperative with you. (laughs) He's going to do the things that you're expecting him to do, the things that you get so frustrated that he's not doing. Let's take this and look at this from a language comprehension perspective, rather than looking at it all as behavior or all as his stubbornness, or again, whatever word a parent uses to describe a child. And so we get at it that way. All right, so now that we see what our problems are with children with autism or red flags for autism and receptive language, let's move on and talk about treatment. And so what I want to start here, uh, start with here is so obvious, but some therapists and a lot of parents really miss this unless someone specifically tells them. So I don't want that to be you. <laughs> so I'm going to be super clear about this. When we are working on receptive language, there are zero expectations for talking. Did you get that? So when you were working on receptive language with a child, you need to forget about your verbal piece. You need to forget about saying things like, tell me, say, or expect them to imitate even any sound or word or anything like that. And why is that? And this is particularly true for children with autism and other sensory kinds of issues, sensory processing issues. Uh, And so why would we do that? And it's the, it, again, the reason is pretty simple, but a lot of times as SLPs, we'll get so focused on the talking piece. And especially when a parent has brought a child to us because they are not talking, it is very hard to sometimes redirect that and say, this has to come first. And so we really talk about with, with uh, children with autism, the reason a lot of times that they're not really understanding words and their comprehension skills are not what we would expect is because their sensory needs are interfering with that. And so we have to reduce the load. 
when uh, we are presenting language to a child and when we are teaching them again to understand. And so if we are asking them to say something, we have really, really overcomplicated that for many, many children with autism. And so when we take a step back and say, I'm not going to focus on talking at all. We're just going to focus on helping this child understand what words mean and demonstrate that he understands what words mean. Uh, that's going to be a lot uh, more productive. And it's going to, again, simplify things for the child, reduce the complexity of, and, of the demands that we are placing on his little system, and hopefully make that a lot easier. A lot of kids with autism, too, we've talked about that social piece, but for them, things even like eye contact and things like being, being next to someone, someone being so close to them for some children, again, really sets them off. If we have so much physical assistance that they just feel like we are in their little faces. And so, again, sometimes you've got to really, really watch when you're working on receptive language for those subtle indicators that a child isn't able to process language for whatever external stimuli is going on. And so we have to, re again, reduce that and so that we give a child, again, the best shot at learning what words mean so that we get to that talking piece. So what are some things that we can do? What are some practical parent recommendations that we can make right from the beginning? And I'm going to talk mostly t about kids who fall in that more severe range, moderate to severe range uh, for autism. And again, as SLPs, those are mostly the kids that we see as toddlers. Because if there's just a mild receptive language, expressive language problem with kids, a lot of times we don't see those kids. Our colleagues get those kids when they're in kindergarten, right, <laughs> or in preschool. But in early intervention, we mostly get the kids who are most significantly um, impacted by whatever's going on that um, affects their uh, language development. So let's let's kind of think about that too, that we're, we're talking about the kids that are hard, <laughs> the kids that are hardest for you as SLPs on your caseload. So what are these practical parent recommendations that we can make? And the first one's a little bit controversial, but I'm going there. <laughs> we need to reduce screen time for these kids. And so why do we do that? It's because so many of our guy, little guys with autism seem to prefer objects over people anyway. And so when we give them something like a screen, whether it's an iPad or whether it's um, their DVD player with their TV in their room or in the car or when most of their waking hours or, or they're shopping with their mom at a store and, you know, their little eyes are glued to the phone. I get that from a distraction perspective or from a behavioral perspective or just getting through the grocery store or driving, you know, on a six-hour trip to see their grandparents. I get using screen time just from just from the perspective of, <clears throat> pardon me, just from the perspective of being a mom or a dad and needing that child to be occupied and okay <laughs> while they're in the grocery store or, uh, like I said, taking a long car trip or on a plane or whatever. But when a parent uses screen time all day, every day, because it's much easier to park that child in front of the TV <laughs> than to deal with the things that are going on, you know, we can expect for there to be a language problem there. And a lot of times parents will say, well, you know, he was just happier doing that and that's what he wanted to do. So I made sure that I put on educational shows for him. And, you know, I thought I was doing the right thing because he really loved it. You know, he's not had enough exposure and opportunity with language and social interaction 
uh, to really make that meaningful for him and to make that enjoyable for him. And because that child has so many visual strengths anyway, it's what he loves and it's how, how, how he prefers. But again, that's not the best way to learn language. Research tells us that there's more brain activity going on when a child is engaged with real people versus put, uh, put in front of a screen. Now, there is some evidence for video modeling uh, with children with autism that they learn from that. And I have used that too. If you've seen my uh, teach a child to say mama routine that's just been our biggest therapy tip of the week ever, uh, that little game, sometimes I do use video modeling for that. But that is not what we, the focus of how a child should be spending most of his waking hours. And so talk to parents about reducing screen time. And you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics used to say no TV for children under three, and particularly those who are struggling with developmental issues like social connectedness and language development. Now they've backed that up a little bit because we live in such a technology-driven world. <clears throat> pardon me, pardon this hoarseness. It's, I can't seem to kick it. I think I really had COVID last year, about a year ago, before everybody else had COVID. We thought it was the flu. Don't think it was the flu anymore. I've had this cough, can't get rid of it for a year, but just kind of wanted to explain that, this hoarseness. But let's back up to what we're talking about with uh, screen time. It, the American Academy of Pediatrics now says that you have, for language, or, or to, to make screen time as educationally um to make it an educational opportunity, you have to have somebody there to interpret it. You can't just rely on the child to interpret the incoming, <clears throat> excuse me, visual messages and interpret that language because they're usually at a higher level uh, that they can really process all at the same time. And even if it looks like the child is really there and in tune and learning, we have to be careful from that. Be careful with that because we know and we can't always assume that that's the only way that he's going to learn. We know that he needs that personal connectedness with other people. And so we want to make sure that we are providing evidence-based recommendations to parents. And so reducing screen time is a big one for kids who have autism or red flags for autism. And it's one that I try to do from the very beginning. Now, not all parents, <clears throat> excuse me, want to go cold turkey with that. And that's okay too, uh, but you just need to talk about reducing the amount of time and see if you can work help a help a family find a balance with that that really works with them and still affords the child an opportunity to be as connected with other people so that he can learn to uh, use language to communicate. All right, so the second big recommendation that we want to make with families with children with red flags for autism or even a diagnosis already is to stay together and talk directly to a toddler as often as possible. Now, why do we say this? I've already used the term self-isolate. A lot of our little guys with autism do seem to be in their own little worlds. And they, they that's a, a phrase as a professional that you may not like, but it's a phrase that parents and other family members and teachers use all the time and so it's something that's very meaningful to them and so talk with them about that and say I know he likes to play in his room and I know that seems to be better because he seems to be occupied and you can get your stuff done but <laughs> you have got to keep him with you so that his social piece gets a little bit easier for him and so that he he looks at you more and so that he listens to you more and so really talk to parents again about 
changing some of just their habits at home so that if they if mom is a stay a stay home mom and she's not working outside the home and you know she's even taking care of other children or doing housework or whatever that child needs to be with her so that if she's folding clothes in her bedroom and on the bed that's where her child needs to be. If she's in the kitchen doing things, that's where her child needs to be. And so talk with them about that and why that is. And again, use some of the language that we've talked about today as a kid needs to be with you so that he can hear words, so that words make more sense to him. And so even just something like hanging out together, talk with parents about how important that is. And especially if this is a child that, you know, I guess it really happens no matter what the birth order is in a family. Sometimes parents, you know, haven't really gotten there's such an adult focused household and so uh, a kid comes in who kind of wants to be by himself and do his own thing and the parents are like yes you know it hasn't really disrupted anything and not that all parents are that way it's just something that they have fallen into it's not necessarily bad it's just it's just what's happened and so you have to really talk with parents about that and that engagement piece and truthfully a lot of parents will say I, di- I didn't know I had to do that I didn't even know that that's what I should have been doing or moms especially will beat themselves up about that they'll say gosh I put a TV in his bedroom and I just let him stay in there all day and I would just kind of go check on him every once in a while or I left the TV on in the den and he watched it all day and I just thought he was sitting there playing and I had no idea that this has contributed to the problem and so you certainly don't want to let a parent assume all that guilt because we know that it's not all environment there that child is wired differently neurologically he's he's He's, he's just not typically developing. And so you tell a parent, no, you didn't cause this. But certainly some of the things that we're doing can be a lot more beneficial to him particularly to learn language than than how we've done it before. So that was the second big recommendation. Stay together and talk directly to that child as often as possible. Oh, let me say one more word about that. We have to really talk to a lot of parents, too, about reducing the complexity. And we already said that children with autism learn in chunks and so we we know that they do that and we know that that's their preference and we know that's their learning style and that's great and we don't always need to talk in single words or have everything completely simplified because we do want them to hear adult conversation models that's great that's fantastic however with a kid with receptive language issues he is not getting it the regular way and so you are going to have to do some simplification and do that reduction in complexity and do instead of talking in paragraphs and talking as fast as I tend to talk slow that down bring that back a level do a lot of very simplified labeling and that's when a lot of toddlers with autism too when even and we're not talking about expressive language today but when we bring it back down to that level to be sure that a child is understanding that that he's really linking meaning with words that he understands the label for pen and glasses and cup or whatever it is When we do that, guess what happens? They start talking. (laughs) They start imitating those words. And even though that's not really our goal today, that is one of the benefits of reducing the complexity so that a child can uh, begin to not only uh, use those single words, but certainly what we're talking about today, understand what those words mean. All right, the third big strategy that I want to share with you that we need to be talking with parents about from the get-go 
as to uh, uh, the best way that I've found to make sure that a child with autism understands how to follow directions is to ask her to do her part in everyday routines. And so what does do her part looks like? What does that look like? That, is, that looks like she's going to have something to do that's her own little job for most of the daily routines that you're doing with her. And so for let's just take something really really simple like a diaper change what could a child's part be well we can look at typically developing toddlers and come up with that right what do they want to do they want to throw it away and so that's their job mom changes the diaper and uh, their little one who loves to run anyway and loves to go to the garbage can anyway you make that a job and so you teach them oh let's go throw it away come on we have it's stinky ooh yucky come on let's go throw it away throw it away and so you are making that their little part in the routine and so again you're teaching them to participate you're teaching them to stay engaged but what are you also teaching them to understand language there to understand what the words throw it away mean and again we're going to talk about a lot of these little things like we talked about before these commands they're going to learn in chunks and the reason, again, that we're going to do this specifically with kids with autism at the beginning is to get them in the habit of listening and then doing what comes next. Listening and then doing what comes next. So think about that for all the little routines that a family might have during the day. What could a kid do after snack time? He could go put his cup or his bowl or whatever he's had in the sink, in the garbage, whatever you want to do with that. What can a child do before you're getting ready to go uh, leave your home, go play outside or whatever it is that you're doing? He could go find his shoes. What could a child do when it's time to get out of the bathtub? He could throw the toys on the floor, put them in the bag, or whatever the little cleanup routine is with the toys for bath time. He could turn the lights on or off when you're going or coming from a room. At the end of a meal, he could wash the ta- excuse me, wash the table or wash this little high chair tray. Or uh, my very favorite one that I like to use. But this was parents, and actually this is the one that I usually start with. If they have a favorite routine that they do together, a book that they like to read that a child really likes to read, or a toy that they like to use together, or some little prop that they use for a game, let's say that the child really likes for his mom to wrap him up tightly in a blanket, or if they play a little game like a matador game, or anything that they do, have the child go get the prop that he needs before the game starts. And I love this because you're teaching him uh, to what we're talking about today, to follow that uh, direction. So you can say something like, oh, I think you're ready to read your book. I, I Do you want to read Goodnight Moon? Do you want mommy to read that to you? Good, go get your book. And so you teach them that from the very beginning. And you know what? And and they're listening and they're learning to follow that direction. But eventually they're going to use that same activity. Oh, they're going to learn to initiate. So when I want mom to read that book to me, I go get that book and then I walk up to her and bring it to her. And again, we're going to talk about initiation later when we uh, talk about expressive language. We'll talk about that in two shows and we'll talk about the pragmatic piece and how important initiation is, particularly for children with autism. And a lot of times they only have one way to do that. They only know how to initiate by what? By pulling their parents or leading them to what they want. And that's great. I'm not knocking that. We just have to give children other ways to do it. And so I've found that when we start these little receptive language uh, games, this do his part 
game that parents will start to think, what can, what's his part in this routine? What's his part in this routine? What can I have him do in this routine? Gosh, it just leads to so many other nice changes. Why wouldn't we introduce that? So it's such a, it's such a fantastic beginning strategy. And again, you're going to use it over and over and over because you're going to realize that the child has started to learn other things too. So fantastic. So those were the three big strategies that we want to teach parents from the get-go for children with receptive language issues. Reduce that screen, with, with autism, with receptive language issues. Reduce that screen time, stay together and talk to that child as often as possible and as directly as possible to keep them engaged with you and you're keeping them engaged so they can eventually start to link meaning with those words and follow your commands and uh, fulfill your request. And then thirdly, we're gonna teach a child to do his or her part. And, and let me say one more thing about those early requests. We've talked about how they can lead to such nice things down the road with saying words and with initiating, and that's fantastic. But one earlier thing that we as therapists can really learn from these early kinds of requests that we teach families to do, we can learn a lot about a kid and then a lot about his or her parents <laughs> from these things too. So when a parent really commits to this and you sit down with them and you say, okay, so what's the one little job that you're going to have her do every time she's finished with snack time? And what's the one little job she's going to do at bath time? And what's the one little job she's going to do for diaper changing time? And what's the one job, you know, and, and you've broken down whatever their routines are and then um, you get you get to that point and, with a parent and they are really committed and you know that they are doing that with that child and and I'll tell you what else I do to make this with a lot of parents we actually write it and so for, so for those of you who are, are in early intervention and you're working on your developing your IFSP goals that's certainly something that you can you know this fits in so nicely with looking at a child's natural environments and his daily routines but you know one thing you might want to do even in that process is just write these kinds of things down so that and this is what I do with that is so that parents can really track what's going on you know how did he do what was what what's his job when uh, y'all are in the kitchen and you're cooking or doing something what's his little job right there and so you can help parents really pinpoint what that is and get it written down and then when you have it written down leave some space so that a parent can write down how that child responded so that you can help them. You can teach them new cueing strategies or ways to make that easier for a child. And it also keeps parents on track because they have an assignment and they uh, have, have an expectation there with, I'm gonna write in this little space and tell you what's happened with it. And another thing that, that parents can do here a lot of times is they, they get to really celebrate successes because they say, gosh, he's, he's following you know, the, what we came up with last week, those four things that he was going to do, you know, one, one at bedtime, one at bath time, and, you know, to go through the little thing. He's doing all four of those things. And, you know, we'll say, well, that's fantastic. And we celebrate that. And now let's get two jobs per routine. And then the next few weeks they're saying, oh, my goodness, Laura, that's, he's doing eight, eight things that he's never done before when I've asked him to do it. And so you can see how they learn how to brag on themselves. <laughs> and they learn how to celebrate those successes and really start to feel like they are accomplishing things with their child. Them themselves not you not you being there saying do this do that and it works but even when you're not there and so I think that's such an important thing and so you're going to learn a lot about a family with an assignment like this how dedicated and committed are the parents going to be if they are not 
going to be able to follow through with this, maybe I can back it off a little bit. Let's make it a little easier. Let's lessen the demands on mom. <laughs> and so you get good information about that. Sometimes it's just, again, it's such good information about the child. You think this poor mom is working herself to death. She is so fantastic with carrying over with these strategies and her child is still struggling. And that gives you important diagnostic information about that child as well. And so great, great strategy um, for all those kinds of reasons. So I love uh, using that with families. All right, so I mentioned the word cueing. So let's talk about cues. And gosh, I feel like I say this in every podcast, but that's how important it is, is teaching parents how to cue their children. And so the tagline that I came up with back in 2008, 2009, when we first started Teach Me to Talk and when I was doing all those DVDs for uh, receptive languages, tell him, show him, help him. And guys, I just haven't found a better way to say it, <laughs> a better way that parents understand it, because it's such an easy thing for them to be able to repeat back to you so that they really, really understand it and such an easy thing for them to be able to teach other people. So tell him, that's a verbal cue, and we all know how important those things are, rewording it, saying it in a different way, even how we tell a child, pausing, again, talking a lot slower than I talk on the podcast. <laughs> so really looking at all the different things that we can do verbally that make it easier for that child to understand. We've talked about reducing the complexity, using more single words, more short phrases. That's what we talk about with telling him. The next piece is what? Tell him show him. So what does that mean? Your visual cues. So you are pointing, you are showing. Sometimes that does mean putting it in front of his little eyes, you know. So if we were going to talk about this pen here and I wanted him for I wanted him to draw. I wanted him to write. I wanted that to be our our activity together, you know, and I I it may take me you know, really, really uh, saying, pen, here's the pen. Come on, let's write, let's draw. And so those visual pieces, the showing him and the, the pointing, and just, again, sometimes we think about that as the specific visual uh, cue, but it might be something like we talked about last week on the uh, in the course about play, where we talked about we have to modify the environment so that we are reducing the visual distractions. And we know that a lot of kids with autism, that's their that's their little hot button. That's how they learn. They're, they're such visual processors versus auditory processors. processors. And that's why language has been harder for them. But if, if they're seeing it, it's easier. But then because of that, they can be so overloaded and so overwhelmed. And so then they can't listen to what you're saying because there's too much for them to see visually. And so sometimes showing him is just helping reduce those visual distractions. The last piece there is what? Tell him, show him, help them. So this is the physical assistance piece. And again, I'm, I'm reviewing this. So if you're a parent, you know, I want you to hear this over and over and over in every show you watch or listen to so that you are really getting, tell him, show him, help him, tell him, show him, help him, tell him, show him, help him. And that's how we should be too as therapists with the families that we are seeing. And so I hope that my repetition uh, in Almost every course I teach with those levels of cueing will help you know how you need to be as a therapist and really help parents learn uh, how to cue their children too. And so, so many times when we teach that, not just to parents, and then parents become responsible for teaching that to everybody, older siblings, 
any family, extended family members that are uh, coming in and routinely being involved with that child, any sitter. Parents even tell me sometimes that they take these strategies that they hear and teach it to their speech pathologist. And I'll get emails from an SLP that'll say, a mom turned me on to your information and they'll kind of go from there so a lot of times it's even a parent teaching a therapist hey this is a really cool way that I learned how to cue my child and if you're a parent don't be afraid of that don't be afraid of that with a parent with, with a therapist I have learned so many things that I use every day that I teach other therapists and parents how to do from another parent because it's worked so well with their child so don't be afraid of doing that so how are we going to cue how are we going to teach kids to understand uh, this little next section that I want to talk about that level of cueing. So tell him, show him, help him are the very best cues. Another really important way to cue uh, a child and to teach language is to really think about our word placement. And so a lot of times when we're teaching a child a new word, and we're, we're going to talk about those specific words or vocabulary list in just a minute. But when we um, think about where we want to put that keyword, a lot of times it's at the ends of our phrases to highlight that importance. So when we say something like, go get your whatever, that's the key word there. And so go get your, and especially um, a child with autism, we know that he kind of learned, he learned, a lot of kids learn in holes. And so, you know, we're just reducing that complexity because we're changing that keyword at the end. And so I think that's a really, really important thing to think about too. And repetition, 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 repetition. I talked about that with our cueing and how I'm using repetition <laughs> with tell him, show him, help him, and repeating it in every single course so that therapists don't miss that po point or that parents don't miss it. And we certainly use the same strategy with children with really saying the same things over and over and over. So again, they have a chance to link that meaning. And remember, it's been harder for a child to do that. They, children who have receptive language issues are not learning language in the typical way that as we would expect because in typically developing children, language, they just learn it through exposure and we don't have to do all of these other things. But when a child isn't learning to follow commands and he's not demonstrating that he understands what your words mean, we know that we've got to do it differently. So that's certainly those things, cueing, we tell him, show him, help him, the repetition piece, and then word placement. We want to get those words in key, uh, those keywords in places that make it easier for him to understand. All right, so we've talked about the parent piece, those three big strategies and then that, those cues, those three cueing things that we talked about. Now let's move on and talk about what you, as a speech-language pathologist, should be doing in your sessions. And this is such a good review for new therapists, for therapists who are switching populations, maybe coming from a school system setting where you've worked with older children, or maybe you're a therapist that, oh my goodness, you are making the jump from adults to early intervention, toddlers and preschoolers, and this is, you have forgotten all of this early language development information uh, that you learned in grad school. And so let's review this 
Uh, and it's also a good reminder for all of us who do have done this all day, every day for years, just to keep us on track. Sometimes we wander off doing our own thing or we have kids that we get just a certain kind of kid and then we just kind of get locked into that pattern and we forget. So for some of us, it's a good idea to kind of go back and get a refresher. And so when we are talking about specific receptive language targets, let's look at the very first kind of thing that we should be teaching children. And number one with kids with autism is teaching them to respond to their own names. Oh, this is such an important marker for autism. We talked about it in show 405 when we reviewed the seven indicators that, that we use as SLPs to screen for autism, the seven things that really differentiate kids with autism or red flags for autism versus the kinds of um, things that we see in kids with other kinds of language delays. And so we talked about that in last show, if you haven't listened to 405. I hope to get to do a little therapy tip of the week about that, so just a little shorter version of that so that you can uh, share it with parents and so therapists, you can go back and listen to that too as your little reminder. But teaching kids to respond to their own names with autism is so, so important. It is uh, a kid's inability or inconsistency with that is a marker for autism. Typically developing children and either even kids with other kinds of language delays are responding consistently to their names by 12 months. So when we're not seeing that with a kid with autism, you know, receptive language goal number one. Now we're not really going to talk about those strategies today because I'm trying really hard in this podcast system not to try to cram every single thing into one show. So I am linking a very specific therapy tip of the week in the description so that you can um, listen to those strategies and implement those strategies. But that should be your goal number one. And and just for kind of a little, uh, just a little note on how to get started with that, you've got to figure out how, what motivates that child and you've got to link that to responding to their names so that if they love physical movement, when you call their names, you've got to give them a big reward for responding to their name. And guys, that is the, and so a physical movement kid, you would throw them up or swing them around, whatever they like. If it's a kid who likes food, you might use an edible with that. Or I talk a lot about on that show how I'm using a, mom, a drink of mom's sweet tea or her kind of a soft drink or something that you think is, oh no, so taboo for kids, but it's been motivating enough to get a child to want to respond. And so we talk about how getting that in place at the beginning, and then we're going to pull that back over time. And so some kids really do need that direct teaching. And so if you don't know how to do that, and that's not something you're really working on with kids, that should be your number one goal, and you need to learn how to do that. So uh, look at that too. The second kind of goal, and this is for what we're going to do in sessions as therapists to work on receptive language, our second goal should be something like a child responding to very simple functional request. And again, this is going to meet a child with autism where he or she is because we know that they learn in chunks. So when we do things like go get this, uh, give me this, those little simple early commands, the kinds of things that we think about with a 9 to 12 month old or a 12 to 15 month old, it does not matter if that child is three or four, and he's still not doing these kinds of things, this is the kind of thing that we need to be working on. And remember what we said we want parents to do with, with this. We said in the do your part game, we wanted parents to use this for uh, whatever activity they like, their child liked to do with them, and the child's job was to go get that at the beginning and then bring that back. You can do that same thing in therapy sessions. 
excuse me, so if you have a child that likes one particular activity, you know, you want to have the materials for that away from where you are going to be sitting with that child or just somehow in, in its spot. I don't know how your particular therapy room is organized. You know, I'm particularly talking about uh, those of us who do outpatient services or school-based services or somewhere where the child is coming to us. And so we are going to use the same principle and say, oh, you want to do a puzzle? Go get the puzzle. Or, um, you know, you know that a child loves to play. Oh, whatever you have there, what, whatever it is that he likes to do, you have him go get that as the beginning part of therapy. Now, for those of us who like to use Ziploc bags, and I do that whole routine with opening the bag, and, you know, that's we, we keep all the toys in one uh you know, one container so that we can really control that beginning, middle, and end of play. You're going to have to think a little bit, and this for me, you know, in, in my clinic, how I'd set that up is, you know, just kind of put it over to the side. If I knew that they like to build with uh, big cardboard blocks or something, and I knew that I was going to use that, you know, that may be over against a wall. And then as I see that, you know, we're we're moving on and I think, oh, you know, this might be a good time to play this game that he likes. That's what I'll do. I'll say, hey, you want to play blocks? Go get those blocks. Go get them. We'll play that game. Go get blocks. And so that's what you do. So set it up like that. So similar to how you did it with parents at with um, parents with those home recommendations. Same kind of activity there. Uh, you also want to think about working on just those things that other toddlers understand so those kind of childhood knowledge things body parts familiar pictures those kinds of things so just following those more uh, it's it's a little bit bumped up with those body parts sometimes therapists think about it you know I'm going to teach that first before we think about other kinds of nouns kids can't really see their own nose their own hair their own feet uh, certainly their own eyes so that's a little harder for me, so uh, or I think that's a little harder for kids, and so I, I don't work on those things until we have some other kinds of uh, really simple direction following going first. So look at that. Don't teach academic words, shapes, colors, letters, and numbers. So many kids with autism learn those on their own, and that is fantastic, but that's because that's what they're fixation or obsession or just there and again because they're so visual it's really their learning strength so when you have a kid who naturally learns colors fantastic celebrate that use those strengths to help uh, work on other kinds of things like listening and like following directions so if you have a kid who already knows colors you're not going to use an activity to teach those colors you're going to use the activity what to help him develop his and strengthen his receptive language skills. And so you might say in a, a little situation like that, if you are, if he likes to build Legos and you are wanting to work on receptive language, you're not going to be able to control it the whole time, but at least some of the time you should say something like, where's yellow? Where's the yellow Lego? Show me the yellow one. And so you're using his own interest that he has developed on his own outside of you, uh, but you're helping him use that little quote to uh, again learn how to follow directions and learn how to uh, listen to what you say and then do it so I love using a child's academic strengths like that shapes colors letters and numbers to uh, work on that listening piece and that receptive language piece but again as SLPs I think we're best to avoid teaching that kind of academic language and those words expressively until we have taught them 
uh, until we have, we don't need to teach them that. That's what I'm trying to say. We don't have to teach them that. That's going to come naturally for them. We don't ever have that as the main goal. The goal here is the receptive language and following that direction. All right. So, um, you can make tons of games out of that. I've done a lot of, uh, Therapy Tip of the Week's about that and a lot of talking about that and uh, my therapy manuals where you make just all kinds of games out of that. So if a kid loves letters, what can you do with that? Well, if he has letter flashcards, you know, use that with a, a listening game with that instead of, you know, uh, have him find those. You know, you hide those through the room or, and I mean hide in plain sight, like put the Put the B flashcard on the chair and put, you know, R over under the table and put G up on the couch. And then you're going to say, where's R? Where'd R go? Go find R. And again, he's listening to you and you're using the thing that he really, really likes. But is it important at two or three that he knows the letter R? It's not more important than him being able to say mama or wave bye-bye or ask for milk. But you are helping him learn how to listen with that kind of game. And I hope that explanation makes sense to you. All right, so for those of you who are not speech-language pathologists, let's run through kind of how we teach words so that you know the sequence. And children most, uh, when they are most new talkers, regardless of what their diagnosis is, uh, learn how to understand and then say or use nouns first. So names of people. Uh, People, names of things that they like, of names of events that they like, outside to play, to you might sound like, you know, out is that preposition and play is the verb, but that's not what it is to a kid. To a kid, that's a noun, that's a name of something, go outside to play, right? And so those kinds of things we want to make sure that children are understanding. And I'm going to say it one more time. There is no expectation for talking here. We are just talking about what they understand. And the only way that we can measure that they understand is that they do something when we ask them to do it. We can't give kids credit for things that we don't see them do. You might think in your heart, I know he knows this. I know he knows it. But guys, until he can do it on request, it's not really mastered. And that's when kids really, really learn how to communicate. It's when they own these words. They, they know what these words mean. And so again, we start with nouns. Then we move to verbs and prepositions are our next parts of speech. So action words and location words. I'm including a vocabulary list. I'm going to make myself a big note about that to be sure it's on there. A vocabulary list for you to look at with this course. And I've included this vocabulary list. If you have uh, any treatment of manual, of mine uh, may not teach me to play with you but every other manual has a great vocab list in it so get that out if you're a therapist because that those are the kinds of words that are most meaningful and those lists are always research-based meaning that I've pulled them from assessments or pulled them from other pieces of research that tell us these are the words that come in first when we're looking at uh, language acquisition research. So take a look at those vocab lists. And if you are not an SLP and don't have a good vocabulary list for yourself, this is a great starting point. And again, you can get it in one of my books if you have that or uh, from the handout for this course. And then other kinds of vocabulary words or voc uh, words included on that list are certainly social 
personal words, and those are really way up sort of with nouns, but that's more expressive. We're talking about receptive here, so this is what kids really, really understand. So look at that. All right, I'm going to share with you uh, one more strategy that I use all the time during sessions to work on receptive language, and you may have seen this if you have seen my DVDs, Teach Me to Talk or Teach Me to Listen and Obey 1 and 2. And or any other of those full-length courses that I've taught, and this is something that I that I try to put in almost every course too, because it's such a winner. And if you're not doing it, you need to be doing it. And that's working on receptive language during cleanup time. And so cleaning up is so hard for so many of our little friends with autism because they struggle with what transitions. They struggle with transitions, and so it's really hard for them to move on from one activity to the next. And so if we can make this more routine-like in sessions, it will alleviate a lot of behavior problems and a lot of things that might take you 15 or 20 minutes to kind of deal with unless you build this in as an early part of your session and an early part of your routine. And again, our purpose as therapists is not to get a child to get our sessions to run as smoothly as possible you know it's not all about us <laughs> we need to be teaching parents how to use these strategies at home too so even though this is for you as a therapist to help your session go better i hope that you can help a parent generalize these strategies to home too and so giving a child something to do as a transition routine, something that I do at the end of one thing that we do to make it easier for me to move on to the next thing. And cleaning up is just a wonderful way to do that. And so with kids with autism, uh, at the end of every activity, I at, at the very beginning, I'll just introduce some kind of cleanup song. Now, I am over 50, and my youngest child was born and liked and kind of in the toddler phase when Barney was all the rage. And so I still sing that Barney cleanup song, Clean Up, Clean Up, from Barney. But there are so many other cute cleanup songs. Uh, Daniel Tiger, uh, PBS show, has a cute cleanup song that a mom taught me last year that I cannot remember for the life of me since I <laughs> don't see that family anymore. But get yourself some kind of cleanup song. And so for a child with autism who, again, is having a really difficult time transitioning and who may not even have liked your activity in the first place, Here's what happens. They hear the song, and then over time they start to like it because they didn't really, they wanted to be finished with this activity anyway, so they start to do it. And I'll tell you something else. A lot of times the kids will start, a kid will start to sing this song to me <laughs> as his indication that I'm finished. I want to move on to something else. But it has been a wonderful tool to help children learn how to transition. And so introduce your song, and as you are cleaning up, putting things in your bags or your baskets or whatever you use to organize materials or whatever a family uses if you're in their home and showing a mom how to do this and you're doing this in your session. And so you teach them the song. Now, you are not going to require a child with red flags for autism or hopefully a toddler with any kind of sensory issue or who is upset with you. You're not going to have them clean up all 36 pieces to the toy <laughs> or the activity. You're just going to have them do two or three while you're cleaning up. They, their job is just to throw it in the bag. You and mom hurriedly get the rest in there, get it cleaned up, and then move on. Over time, again, you want the child to be, begin to associate, oh, I hear that song. It's time to clean up. Let's do this. And again, what are you teaching them? You're teaching him how to do his part, right? And so that's what we're going to do at the beginning. That's kind of our transition routine. And he has learned what? He has learned what 
cleanup means. And so mom can use that all day. However she wants to use it, you know, teach her to do it. Y'all talk about what that means for her and how she can incorporate that routine. And I think teaching a kid a way to transition with a song, if you can do it that way, why not? <laughs> it's one of the easiest routines. And think about really skilled preschool teachers or kindergarten teachers or even teachers in those early grades. They have little, they, they have a song or uh, something that they say for everything to signal a child that, you know, this is coming up next. This is coming up next. So it's a great way to do it. How do we transition that receptive language uh, transition? <laughs> How do we transition then that cleanup song to make it a little more complicated when a child is mastered? That, that's when we really go to giving more uh, traditional requests for a child to follow. So that's when we say, oh, find the baby, clean up the baby. Find baby's shoes, get the shoes, clean up the shoes. Where's the bottle? Put the bottle in. Where's the fork? Did you see baby's hat? And so you're giving those different requests and different commands. And again, as I was giving those there, I really changed my my lead in with give me the, find the, where's the, and you can certainly do that too, but a lot of times for kids with autism at the beginning, I just really try to simplify it and just hat, where's hat, um, you know, ball, where's ball, you know, as we're cleaning up, block, where's block, and so we keep it pretty simple and pretty consistent, we use that repetition again to help him do it, and so at that point, you've bumped him up, and he's cleaning up on request, two or three little things. So he's following some directions with those nouns. We talked about learning that first. So that is such an easy way to get receptive language going with a child in uh, the middle of session. So if you think about, or in session, so if you think about, I'm going to have him go get something to do the next activity. That's how I'm going to start my activity with a big receptive language focus. And then during the activity, you're giving a lot of simple requests for him to complete. And if he doesn't do it, that's okay. Or if you're trying to work on something else or whatever, but you can still get back to that receptive language piece by the end of the activity, by making sure that you in include those cleanup routines at the end. And that that's when you're really, really thinking, what does he understand? How well is he following this direction? And you can do that in play, but sometimes in play, kids get so engrossed in the play and what they want to do, and that's okay. That's what they're supposed to do, right? We want them completely captivated by what we're doing together. And sometimes it is a little harder to work on receptive language in the context of a play routine, but at the end, the beginning and the end, you should always be able to get that receptive language in practice. So let me give you one more tip, and then we're going to wrap this up. What do we do for kids who just can't make it to that next level where um, just that trying to, they're okay with one-step commands, but uh, we make it a little bit harder and they fall apart. They don't know what to do. <coughs> and we talked about kids with autism have such difficulty with language processing. So we want to get uh give them opportunities to have just that little baby step to move up to that two-step command. So what I like to think about is we've, we've given them a lot of practice with go get the or find the, whatever it is, where's the, whatever that little blank is for that object. And then when they get it, you want to ask them to do what would come next or that next little part. And Sometimes parents say, well, he would have done that anyway. Yeah, but you know what you're doing? You're So if we say, go get the ball and throw or, uh, you know, get the marker and draw or whatever that next little thing would be. Sometimes parents say, well, he would have done that anyway. I don't know if he's really following the command. And I get that. And I'm there with you. But 
with kids with receptive language issues, you have to teach them what those words mean. So even with you saying something that they are about to already do, you are helping develop their receptive language skills. So think about kind of, you know, keep that balance there. He's not doing it because I say it, because it's not really him following that request, but I'm still giving him those words for it. And if I can get my timing a little better, I can start to uh, ask those things before he does it. And then that's going to be a little more uh, dependable with is he understanding it. But you can always... Uh, kind of test those things later and make sure that he's he's again that it's really true comprehension versus that you were just using your in-between strategy of saying what he's about to do next so just to help him get in the habit of that two following that two-step direction another important uh, component here is having kids identify or find two different objects right there so with a puzzle you say give me the cow and the duck or find the boat in the plane. And see, I can't even do that strategy without <laughs> presenting my visual cue as well. If you're not watching on YouTube, if you're just listening on the podcast, you can't see that I just held out a hand when I said cow and a hand when I said duck. You know, Or if you're telling a child, let's say that you have a, uh, just you're going to play a little relay game. You're just working on attention and he's a busy kid and he's a mover and shaker anyway. And let's say his little hot button is letters. He loves letters and his mom has puzzle pieces with the letters, and so what could you do with this? You know, for a kid who's having difficulty moving up to two-step commands, you ask him for two letters or letters or, or two pieces of information. So you might say, you know, find the S and the P or uh, get the G and the Q. And then if you want to make it a little harder, you can do something. If he like in those colors and letters, you can say something like find the blue M or show me the red a. And so that's a little harder, but getting a child ready and holding those two pieces of information there, a lot of times that's the missing link with kids who can't go on to follow two-step commands. And again, keep in mind how many pieces of information you're asking for. If you are asking them to do two different actions with it, so you're using two different verbs, now that's a little bit more complicated with the two-step command. So as an SLP, really analyze what you're asking your child to do, how many pieces of important information are there for him to process. And so if a parent is having some difficulty with a child uh, following directions at home, that might be something that you could discuss with them too and, and teach them as well to really say, you know, he can't do that one because you're actually including four or five different big pieces of information. That's too hard. Let's back that down. Let's try something like this and then give, him a, give them a simpler example. All right, let's talk about one more thing, and then we're really going to wrap up. I, I'm usually so positive about children. I hate to end a show on a negative note, but we have to remember that nearly one-third of children who are diagnosed with autism or who go on to be diagnosed with autism have cognitive delays. And we know when there are cognitive delays, we expect what? We expect receptive language delays because cognition and receptive language really can't be separated in children who are younger than 36 months developmentally. That's harder to do. Dr. Rossetti, I learned that from him, drilled it in my head uh, from taking all his courses. So we expect a kid to have some difficulty learning what language is or learning what words mean and learning, to, learning what words are. 
And so uh, we have to really talk with parents in this and talk with ourselves, even though we do not use terminology like mental retardation anymore. You know, we say cognitive delay, cognitive impairment. Some parents just really don't understand it unless we are as frank with them as we can be. And sometimes we as therapists, we just will really, really get so locked into why isn't this kid talking? Why isn't he communicating better? I've worked with him for six months. I don't understand what the problem is. There may really be, again, some underlying thing here with uh, cognitive development that really, really prevents a child from uh, moving forward with language when we don't give that receptive language piece and that cognitive piece enough attention. So remember that with our little guys with autism. So many of them have, oh, wonderful cognitive strengths and so many of them with their splinter skills they're just doing all kinds of really really uh, academic things that you just will just blow your mind especially if a kid is hyperlexic and he's reading and you know and then we start to kind of think about autism that way without really looking at our friends with autism who have those underlying cognitive issues and so we know receptive language is going to take longer and so we have to talk with parents about that and talk with ourselves about that and make sure that we're all on track and working on uh, what we should be working on all right so we're at the end of this course I didn't even mention through the whole course that all of this information can be found in my latest treatment manual the autism workbook is exclusively available at my website at teachmetotalk.com so pop over there and get some information about this if you want a comprehensive plan to get your child's or uh, your all your children your whole caseload of kids with red flags for autism moving uh, and making progress get yourselves a copy of this workbook it has so much information in it and this entire uh, autism podcast series is pulled from this workbook and I hope that it'll be as much of a help to you and your practice as it has been for me all right uh, therapists get your five dollar credit for the show at teach me to talk and the link is below that as well if you're uh, below in the post as well if you're watching on YouTube all right that's it for today I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist. And thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.